Good morning. Well, I think you've got the scripture up there, so you can follow me as I read it with you this morning. Proverbs, <coughs> excuse me. Proverbs 23, verses 6 through 7 from the New King James Version. Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. As he thinks in his heart, so is he. But who is this doing the thinking here? The writer makes it quite clear that it is the miser. He is doing the thinking. And according to Bruce Waltke, that man's inner thinking exposes his true identity. In other words, it means that this man's thinking defines him. His thinking defines his true identity. Now we know that we don't always think as we should be thinking. We're sinners, being saved by grace. But where does this thinking, this thinking begin? James, who's believed to be the brother of Jesus, explains to us how we get tempted and sin. First, he tells us in James 1 verse 14 that each person is tempted by his own evil desires. Then it is by his own evil desires that he is dragged away and enticed. Finally, after this person has been enticed, when his desire has conceived, it brings, it gives birth to sin. So then, it all begins and stems from desire. But where does this desire begin? We see something which is attractive to us, something that glitters, attractive. We think about it, and we want it. We desire it. And that desire is lodged in here, the mind. William Barclay explains how desire works. He says, sin would be helpless if there was nothing in human beings to which it could appeal. Desire is something that can be nourished or stifled. It can be controlled and even by the grace of God eliminated if dealt with at once. If someone entertains desire for long enough, there is an inevitable consequence. Desire becomes action. So then, if you desire something that you shouldn't, then deal with it immediately. You see, evil desire is like a snake. It is easier to kill it when that snake is little. Easier to kill it 
when it is little. But if you don't kill it when it is little, it grows bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it is beyond your control and it bites you. That is why James says in verse 15 that sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sin, you see, is as deadly as a venomous snake whose bite, if untreated, leads to death. In the same way, sin, if unrepented, leads to eternal death. So then, our problems begin when we see something which is not ours and we desire it, or when we see someone who is not ours and we desire her or him. And now the battle begins in your mind. Will you stifle that desire or will you nourish it? So in everyday life, you may find yourself desiring or comforting something which isn't yours. Maybe it's an item in the company office which, if taken by you, will not be missed. Perhaps one of the several staplers or scissors in the office Or perhaps it might just be the little things that you might help yourself to. Envelopes, postage stamps. If your thinking, your desire conceives, and you take these things, then your thinking will define you. You are now a thief. A little thief. Your boss can't trust you with his postage stamps. In the same way, if it is another person's spouse that you secretly desire and you do not stifle that desire, it will conceive and define you. And now you will be an adulterer. So then what I have done so far this morning has been to trace some of our sinful actions back to their source in the thoughts and in the desires of the hearts. But as you already know, our hearts are not the original source of sin in the human race. We need to go back to the fall of man in Genesis 3, 1 through 6 and It says, now the serpent, that is the devil, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she took some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Notice that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. But the problem was that this tree was in the middle of the garden. The one tree that they were forbidden even to touch. This was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God had categorically said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will surely die. Yes, Eve knew that. But you see, her eyes were telling her something different from God's words to her husband, to her and her husband. She saw that regardless of what God had said, the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. And furthermore, it was desirable for gaining wisdom. The thoughts, the desires of her mind here where was where the battle was fought and lost that day. Here, in her thoughts, in her mind. Here was where the battle was fought for her and is where it is fought for you. She heard the devil try to sow the seeds of doubt in her mind when he said, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? But she knew that the devil was twisting God's words for she replied, we may eat from the trees in the garden but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Eve knew very well. She remembered very clearly what God had said. But the devil, realizing that his twisting of God's words had not worked on Eve, he went for her throat. He said, you will not surely die. And that was the first lie ever told. And in telling it, the devil was calling God a liar. And horror of horrors, Eve believed the lie. <coughs> Excuse me. She disregarded God's word she considered the fruit of that deadly tree to be desirable. And she nourished that desire long enough that it conceived and became action. That desire in her thinking now defined her. Eve was now a sinner the first of all sinners 
and her husband became the second of all sinners when he ate some of the fruit. And their sin was passed on to all of mankind. It's in our blood. We were all born as sinners. Sometimes it becomes a little difficult to handle that. You know, when a baby's born and you go there and you see it all in that little crib in the hospital room and it's so cute and it comes out and it's pink and neat and, oh, it would, the baby, innocent little baby, but you don't know what's in that little critter. Because no matter how godly you may be as a parent, no matter how you desire that child to grow up good and true and not be a little sinner, you discover one day that little cherub tells you a lie. Blatant, outright lie. You didn't teach it to do that. It does it because it was born that way. And now, today, as things stand, any person who has not accepted Jesus Christ as his or her sin bearer is lost. Subject to the same fate of all mankind. When humans are born into the world, they are born sinners. They are lost and will die and go to hell unless they avail themselves of the grace offered to them in Jesus Christ. Only that changes it. Strange thing is, as unbelievers go around laughing at the gospel, they ask and wonder why there is so much evil and violence in the world. We are seeing violence unparalleled in our day and time. We see it in the wars that take place. But we're seeing it more clearly than anywhere else in the Middle East, Near East. We see it in the violence, the brutality, murder, rape, beheading, human trafficking. And people wonder. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived in Nazi Germany in World War II, and who was executed for his involvement in a plot to kill Hitler, said this. We ask what has happened. In the first place, the middle has been entered. The limit has been transgressed. What does he mean by the middle? We're talking about that tree in the middle. You see, the middle was the place where stood the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That forbidden location where that tree stood. Now what is it about this tree that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What is God? He is good. He is the only entity in the universe that is truly good. Now this tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Knowing good and evil. And if you look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you'll see what this word knowing is. It's ginosko in Greek. It means experientially knowing. It's experientially knowing and experiencing 
Not just the, know, the knowledge of God, but God plus something else. You know, it's very easy for people in the world who, who, who nominally say that they're Christians. I mean, if you go to the average person in the street and you say, what's your religion? Oh, I'm Christian. But you see, what is it that they've really got? They've got that statement. They say that they believe in God, but it is God plus something else. And when you put the plus in, that's when you ruin your life. When it's not just God's will in your life, but God's will plus something else, which you add in there, and it gets into there like something that muddies up clear water. You see, right now, the middle, we know, has been entered. Adam and Eve entered the middle and took all of humanity with them. Now, says Bonifer, now man stands in the middle. Now he is without limit. Thinks he can do what he likes. He lives out of his own resources. Lives out of his own resources. Does it his way. Remember Frank Sinatra, I did it my way? He lives out of his own resources. That is, he, that he is without limits means that he is alone. He's alone. Now he lives out of himself. Now he creates his own life. He is his own creator. Does it his way. Knows he has all the answers or thinks he does. Now he creates his own life. His own creator, he no longer needs the creator because he's become a creator himself to the extent that he creates his own life. What a life. I've grown old and I cannot imagine what it would be like to know that one day I will die and to know that that's it. That's all I know. I don't know anything else. I don't believe in anything else. So now I face this inevitable thing. Maybe it's death by cancer. Maybe it's death by being run over by a truck and seeing my blood running out in the pavement. Then what it is like, what is it like? Alone, utterly alone, with nothing, nothing. Now I'm going to die and it's not too far away. But I'm not afraid of that. Though my body grows older, I know that it will grow stronger spiritually because I'm centered in Christ just as you can be. What a tragedy when we see this. But here is the good news. Neither you, neither you nor I are alone in our struggle. They're alone out there when they choose to live like that, but you're not. We are in Christ. And as long as we are proactive with him, he will never leave us. What do I mean by proactive? I mean you can't just go along every day thinking, oh, it's all just glorious and hunky-dory. Praise the Lord. Come to church and think it's all okay. When you never take stock of yourself before God and let the Holy Spirit convict you of what you need to straighten out. Because you will stay as you are. 
the rotten kind of person you will be without Jesus Christ. Without morals, without honor, without decency. And you'll think it's all right because I've seen it in the churches. I've seen these characters floating around in the churches. Their lives are filthy. And some of them are actually in ministry. Being proactive means just get off that horse and let God talk to you and realize you need him and only he is the one that saves you. Being proactive is letting him work with you and change you. Now I am convinced that there is not a single Christian in this sanctuary who wants to sin. But of course the problem is we often slip up and do what we really don't want to do. And so we're able to empathize with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 verses 14 through 25. He says this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And then suddenly... Paul comes up with a solution for us. He says, what a wicked man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is deliverance comes not through our own strength as we keep on struggling, but through Christ. You see, there is deliverance that isn't all that Paul taught us about his struggles in Romans. Paul also tells us that we can live as winners. For he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. What this means in simple terms is that we who believe are being transformed by the Spirit of the Lord at work in us, gradually transforming us into the likeness of Christ. That is why we talk about in Assemblies of God progressive sanctification. Now let's just talk briefly about where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If He is at work in your life and you're letting Him do this, you'll find a certain freedom. But that freedom comes through a certain recognition. You see, I don't know what you're like, but I need every day to square away what I've done wrong in the sight of God. 
And there is something I have to square away every day. And when I do that, I'm being proactive with him because when I, before I get out of bed in the morning, I say to him, Lord God, would you speak to me? Put your finger where there are things that need to be done and need to be changed. And bless the Lord, he doesn't give me a list a mile long, which is the rest of my life, because he knows I can't get it all right now. He just shows me one thing at a time, which for me is the important thing. It might not be the same thing with you, because with you there are other dynamics. But with me, he'll put his finger on precisely that thing which he wants me to work on. And to work on means to say to him, Lord, I recognize this. I confess it to you. I'm asking you to forgive me. Will you help me today not to do that again? Now, what if it happens again? Well, he's patient because if you're being honest with him and you're struggling with it, he'll work with you again tomorrow and tomorrow and the next day. But you keep at it. And what I have found is one day you suddenly realize, I've gone a whole week and this hasn't happened again. And you start winning because he does this. Now, some people think this is bondage talking about sin. You know, there's some Christians who wander into Pentecostal churches and others. They don't confess their sins. They think, oh, I'm, you know, it's for the sinners out there. You know, they come in there waving grubby hands in the face of God and their hands aren't clean, they haven't confessed it, they haven't even thought about it. They're in bondage. When I get up in the morning having confessed my sins, there's a load off my mind. You see that page on which all the sins were written. When I've asked him to forgive me, whew, it's wiped away, it's blank, and I'm free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. My day is free. And I know that as I live and move and have my being in him, he's going to take care of it all the way through. That's being proactive. That's what we've got to do. Now let me give you a bit of friendly advice. Take it from an old man who's been around a long time. I want to say to you categorically, listen to me carefully because you're all in this muddy puddle right now. This is what life is in Boston. Tiredness is the enemy of the soul. It will weaken you and stunt your growth in Christ. Nothing is more tiring than a complicated, overloaded lifestyle. Richard Foster speaks of the discipline of simplicity. He wrote, simplicity is freedom. Think about that. Simplicity is freedom. Duplicity or multitasking is bondage. Simplicity brings joy and balance. Think about it. Simplicity brings joy and balance. Duplicity, multitasking brings anxiety and fear. Preacher of Ecclesiastes observed that God made man simple. Man's complex problems are of his own devising. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 39 in the Jerusalem Bible. You need to pray, as I do 
all the time, and I talk to Sue about it. Sometimes we have to make decisions, and I say, you know, Sue, I think the best way in this thing is the simple way, and she agrees with me. When we get it down to the simple way, the straightforward way, keeping it simple. You know what one of the things is about simplicity? Jesus taught us, sufficient unto the day are the evils thereof. My life's not quite squared away yet. I'm I'm waiting for God to do something because I know that this isn't the end of my life here. I've got some work to do. And I want it to happen. And I want it to happen now. But in the meanwhile, I can do only one thing. What do you want me to do today, Lord? That's simple. What do you want me to do today? I might have to think a little bit ahead because, well, I've got to think about uh, Wednesday, the generations groups having a, a party. So I've got to think about that. But apart from anything else, just today is my concern. Keeping it simple, keeping it free, it's a way of peace. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, you know us, you've made us for yourself. We know that you want us to always draw close to you. We know that your word tells us that we may not have total divine healing at this time in every case. We may not have a lot of things, but your word tells us that you are able to keep in perfect peace him whose heart is stayed on you. And if our hearts are stayed on you, I believe that your word has told us that you'll give us as much peace as we reach out and claim. Peace is ours, not as the world gives it, but as he gives it. And it passes all understanding. And we know from your word that we can have this peace which passes all understanding if we just let ourselves be rooted and stayed in you and we can live in peace in this crazy world. So, Lord God, we ask that you'll use us to your glory. We know that each one of us has a ministry. We're all called to ministry of some kind or another. Help us not to be slacking. Help us to step forward and take upon our shoulders the yoke that you lay upon us to pull the wagon that needs to be pulled. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.